Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. Today we've got Sean Pendergast and Michael Lombardi. Sean and I will discuss a few things, uh, including 80s movies and how they're not all that socially acceptable anymore. And also Michael Lombardi talks about a bunch of stuff in the NFL, including where Bill O'Brien is right now as a head coach and and how we might want to think about evaluating him. Michael's on his way back from the West Coast to the East Coast. And we talked to him. He was like 40 miles east of El Paso on his way to the Baylor game. Uh, And I'm just always amazed by what that guy has at his fingertips, so to speak. I guess at his brain tips, um, the memories and the stories he has and just his in-depth knowledge. So awesome stuff from Michael and Sean as usual. Sean Pendergast back again. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you, Seth? I'm good. Uh, I think last time we talked about how we might be at the dawn of a golden age of Thursday night football. We sit here recording this on a Friday morning. It didn't feel like a golden age type of game between the Patriots and the Colts. And you did see the reemergence for a second straight week of Andrew Luck. And you saw a game that was more competitive in the second half than it looked like it was going to be in the first half. So it wasn't a barn burner, but it was a notable game and a competitive game, if not a classic game, which is way better than we ever expected out of Thursday Night Football in the past. Well, we we talked about it last week from the context of the – the network partner of the NFL. I know at least that was part of our discussion. That it's Fox. It's Fox now. Fox now. And and did Fox have discussions about maybe having more say in who the matchups would be or asking for better matchups? And while it wasn't a great game last night, and even on paper coming into the season, it wasn't a great game, I think some of the – it's a very sellable game. Right. When you think of the storylines, right? When you think of just not the history – not just the history between the two teams – going back to, to Peyton and Tom Brady. But even within this Andrew Luck area, you've got the deflate gate thing and then Josh McDaniels leaving the Colts at the altar last year. So Colts-Patriots, to the average layperson, just the two helmets sitting on the screen and saying, hey, coming up on Thursday night, I think probably if you're just the average NFL fan, knowing that Andrew Luck threw for 460 yards last week, they obviously didn't know that going into the season. Right. He was going to throw for 460 yards. But it's still one of those matchups that pops a little bit, especially when you've gotten used to Thursday nights the last few years being kind of meh. Um, but it, it, it wasn't a great game. But I think that I think sometimes these matchups, you look at it, is this something we can pitch to the audience? And, and it's always – it's never been the actual game that everybody wants it to be. It's never been the grudge match you want it to be. But I'm glad you brought up the Josh McDaniels thing because that remains one of the oddest dramatic scenarios I've ever seen in the NFL. And yet, for whatever reason, I, I almost – think people look at it as an afterthought you had a guy who had accepted a job in his previous employer and I mean like he he was gonna quit his job with the Patriots to take a job with the Colts the Patriots according to Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels at least didn't even really make much of a pitch for him to stay the first time during the season they lose the Super Bowl and then 
Bill Belichick just Jedi mind tricks Josh McDaniels into sticking around. And this could have been this could have been an ultimate showdown between Josh McDaniels and oh. Bill O'Brien. Josh McDaniels go, going to the enemy. But this is like another instance of how much of it was how much of it was Bill Belichick desperately needing Josh McDaniels along with Bill Belichick hating the Colts so much that there's no way in hell he wanted to see him go to the Colts specifically. Yeah, I would love to know. It It would be easier to answer that if we knew exactly what Josh McDaniels got to stay. Yeah. You know, did he get a gigantic pay raise? Because when you think about the sacrifice that he made, what NFL team would hire Josh McDaniels now after he did that? Like, I, even if you thought the guy was a talented head coach, just on principle, I can't hire a guy who told an NFL team yes – left them hanging throughout the entire postseason process, and then said, nah, just kidding, I'm going to stay here. For different reasons, he almost has a Lane Kiffin feel to him now. Yeah. Where you can't deny his ability, but you also wonder, like, all right, is there something on this guy's personality that that just I, we can't ultimately do a deal with a guy on a grand scale? And did he get too much too soon in his career? I think a, a lot of people argue that with Lane Kiffin, yeah. right? He, he goes and he gets the – he he gets the the Raiders job. The, his first head coaching job was with the Oakland Raiders. You know that was, that was his first at age thirty two or something like that. Same way Josh McDaniels was, I think, in his early thirties when the Broncos hired him. So, yeah, and I, I don't know if Lane Kiffin's going to wind up getting back to where people think he can get back to coaching wise. I feel like he's in the perfect spot right now, like in like in CUSA, going he's like he's winning tweeting his, about politics. Yeah, like just <laughs> he just doesn't care. Being weird, like banging coeds, living in Boca Raton, winning nine games. Like I, I feel like that's the perfect ecosystem for Lane Kiffin. But it's a great analogy. I hadn't thought about that. Like I, I think the the biggest thing is both guys got big keys to big time. You know, renowned blue blood types. You can say what you want about the. I mean, the Raiders are a traditional organization, or were when Lane Kiffin hired them. They were dysfunctional. Yeah, but they had a lot of tradition, as did the Broncos. So, yeah, good good analogy. With um, the one thing about the Patriots, I'd say, is, and this is the frustrating thing every year, is that okay, they're slow starters. They don't look like the same. It looked like a really really bad version of it this year, but now they get Julian Edelman back. Brady's looked really sharp for a couple weeks now and it doesn't there's no reason to believe that the Patriots in the second half of the season especially by then aren't going to be as dominant as they ever were well and the AFC East is kind of showing itself yeah like everybody was like hey look at Sam Darnold after week one and he's kind of regressed it's going to be a struggle for the Jets this year I know the Dolphins started 3-0, and but the Patriots put them back in their place. And, and Tannehill's the, doing some nice things, but you still can see that, okay, we've seen that he's not going to elevate people around him. Yeah, so, they've, so they're going to have their games in the AFC East, which they're going to win. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing in the AFC is that the Steelers look – you know, the Steelers are dysfunctional and messy right now, and they were supposed to be the, the clear number two team. So there's no – and even with Kansas City 4-0 right now, I thought that was a nice win in Denver the way they had to win it. But that defense is really, really bad. It's no. a terrible defense. So, yeah, the, the Patriots – and I haven't looked at the odds, but i got to guess the Patriots are probably still the favorite to win the AFC. And the thing about their defense is their defense is always – like they've always got certain deficiencies on defense, and then they get better as the season goes along. I think that, more than anything, is the best indicator of – how good a coach Belichick is because it's always easy to have that debate about, okay, how much did Belichick make Brady and vice versa? Their defense gets better as the season goes along consistently simply because they're better coached. They, they make do with usually not having great pass rushers and over the course of a season, I watch it. I've seen it. Like I've seen the Patriots defense last year when they played the Texans early on, 
their defensive linemen were playing with poor technique, mm-hmm. weren't maintaining their leverage. Then you get towards the end of the season, and you see they're still not a great defense, but they're just more technically sound. Yeah. And guys on the back end, they get they're still not technically great. They're not athletically awesome, but they're disciplined. Yeah, and 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 that leads directly to what they're really good at, which is situational football. They're yeah. just so good at getting off of the field on third down. They're really good in the red zone. They've always been that way. Yeah, they've always been that way. And By then, the way, Patriots are a Patriots and Chiefs. Both about three to one to win the AFC right now. So the Chiefs are a small favorite over the Patriots to win the AFC. This will, when we get to your picks, I don't think you did the Chiefs, but I am really interested to see how the we Chiefs. Talk about that. Yeah, um, how that how he does this week versus that defense. Yeah, a couple things came up during our show today that were off air, like during the break, which there were topics that I wish we had talked about on air. That happens on our show. And too. I actually I thought that you would. I, I wanted to talk to you about this, Kylie Wong and I started talking about kill the carrier, the old the old childhood game. And we started talking about it because I was telling Called us, by a much uh, less yeah. politically correct name. Well, I, was at, I was at a soccer game last year, and these kids, like these little fourth and fifth graders, were behind me, and I overheard one of them say, hey, let's – Let's play smear the queer. Yeah, and I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, dude. wait a what a set. Wait, wait a minute. What the hell? And I turned around and I had one of those moments where I was like, "I just, like, what do I do? I talk to these strangers' kids about? Hey, <laughs> like, do you get, let me uh, look. Uh, let me talk to you about Stonewall and the significance of <laughs> like. Uh, but anyway, kill the carrier. Yeah, uh, and we just that was our standard name for it was kill the carrier. Yeah. Paul Gallant said they had a name for it. it. Was like kill the man with the ball. We called it that too. You called it kill the man with the ball. What the hell is that? We called it smear the queer and kill the man with the ball. That's a weird one. Kill the man with the ball. There's might no be, ring to that. It might be a New England thing. Because <laughs> so yeah, Paul was. I, I know Paul spent high school in Florida, but I think he spent his formative smear the queer years in uh, in New England. So uh, just an awful name, obviously. But yeah. in terms of the game itself. In, we're trying to figure out, like, is there another game like that where there is no object to that game? Like, there's no – you don't score a goal. You don't get points or anything. You just toss the ball yeah. up to somebody. They catch it, and then they try to run. They can throw it away any chance they want, right? You can throw it away. Yeah, yeah. But you just keep going. Yeah. Or is it – do you have to get tackled before you give the ball up? You you have to uh, – boy, that's a good question. I, I guess the rules the, might vary. The exact rules, but you, you – on paper, you definitely should not want the ball. Yeah. But there was a certain, like, uh, rush to having the ball in that game and, like, plowing guys over and making guys miss. And, yeah, the, the goal with us was just to be able to make it back in from recess. Right. You know? Like, <laughs> no, was, just to, like, <laughs> like not go to, to the nurse's office. Listen, uh, kids, if you're listening to this, younger people, for one, don't use the previous name for that game. <laughs> right. Two, uh, look uh, – Video games used to really suck. Okay, yeah. like there was a, the Game Boy wasn't even invented until like the mid '90s. It was uh, it was not it was not a great time to be doing anything other than just trying to crush each other outside. It's so funny you say that, Seth, because when you and I were talking about this right before we started recording, I was thinking, God, what other games did we play when I was a kid that just had no tangible scoreboard at the end of the game? And we used to play a game. We used to play like a real life game, like. Call of Duty, but the real life version. Like we had like our fake guns, right. And our camo. We right. lived in a pretty rural part of the, you know, a pretty rural neighborhood. We did it with BB guns. Okay, we didn't actually actually have ammunition. Yeah, um, that's hardcore. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, dumb. we we would just like we would send like two teams like out into the woods, and you when you see a guy, you scream. I forget what we called it. Like 
uh, like pet. We called it Paga. Paga Peter. Paga. <laughs> I don't know why it was like maybe it, it was a it was form some of version peg, of tag or of peg, peg or yeah. tag or maybe a combination of those two. We called the game Paga, and it was Paga Peter. And then once you, if, so if, if you, you had a clear line of sight to him and you saw him before he you saw yelled, you, then it was yeah, and you yelled and, and they would have to concede and you get to bring them over to the prison. That was just simply body counts there. There at least you're keeping count. Too. It, it, that's like a, that's why Vietnam uh, failed. By the way, it was when they well aside from all the other reasons, our guys just yelled Paga. Well, when the they lost the according to at least the uh, Ken Burns documentary when I mean, it was just obviously a whole quagmire yeah. but they started measuring their objectives just in kill counts which was really really bad because for one reason morale on the ground was like okay we'd take a hill and then the next day give it back yeah so you lose all these casualties and then they start realizing like all we're trying to do is have a higher body count yeah but then back home you might see okay well hey this week or this month we killed however many of the enemy. People don't see that number as much as like, oh wow, and a hundred Americans died. <laughs> right, you know, right. and and you're not gaining ground or anything. You're just counting bodies. Yeah. So good for you guys. You guys are a product we, of the. You guys were a product of the. The Vietnam era. Yeah, the and also just the lack of morale in the country that <laughs> came bit. from after Vietnam. Because you didn't grow up. It's not like you were uh, you you could have been drafted in the Nam. No, no, and it was the early '80s. There was a lot of coke. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a lot of coke <laughs> floating around your middle school. energy somehow. Where's my fake gun? So uh, what what we settled on was that it was like the most pure form of us as social animals going out and. Playing is a form of just like a combative play, which whatever gets you ready for for later in life. But also the real goal of that game is to prove your worth. Like it's to prove your bravery or your virility or whatever it is. It's like that's all it is. Like how how gallant can you be while people are trying to kill you? And it fills that thrill-seeking void that some people have. Yeah, yeah. There's something about just wanting to go out and maybe – face getting the, the snot beat out of you with a football in <laughs> exactly, your hands. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the other one I had, uh, in light of all the Brett Kavanaugh stuff, let's, uh, let's get, a lot of voting let's going get on super on my, serious there, There's right a now. lot of voting going on on my TV this morning. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was yeah, it's, but I was, it's been fun. It's been a fun, it's been a fun two years. <laughs> uh, Kavanaugh, now, I got into a discussion with one of my friends, and we were talking about high school, and then we started like telling stories. Nothing, uh, nothing obvious. Nothing that's gonna, you know, come up in a congressional hearing in it. But for the first time in my life over these last couple years, I start having this feeling when I'm thinking about my high school stories and some of the stuff like that I might have done with girlfriends or whatever. I get really freaked out thinking about how young we both were, and it, and it, it's. I feel weird even going back to that spot in my memory yeah because those are like i these uh, that's young man it's yeah. young and it's messed up and i don't even like thinking about it now where i have like this emotional wall i didn't know the whole story uh, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to talk about this without getting too into the weeds i didn't know the whole story about kavanaugh until the you know obviously a lot of this stuff came to light once he got nominated for this this spot by, yeah. by the president and when I first heard it, I'm thinking, okay, this must be stuff that's pretty recent. Wow, this is, you know, do we have like a Clarence Thomas situation on our hands or whatever? And then I see the stories about him. I'm like, this is all stuff from back when he was in college. And I'm not condoning any of the stuff he did. But I'm like you. I started going through my head. I'm like, God, I went to a lot of dances back in the day. Right. How could some of the things that I did be construed a certain way? You well, know? but even among like, – I wasn't just, a pig or anything. Uh, no, no, you're not a pig or anything. Or like even between two consenting adolescents. Right. That's the problem is like I'm thinking in my mind and I'm just – 
I'm shocked and dis- as a parent now, I'm shocked and dismayed about the stuff that we did okay. as like consenting adolescents between each other, and I'm I'm very uncomfortable with all of it, well, and, including my own mind, because in my own mind, I'm a 43 year old looking in my mind's eye at these yeah. teenagers, and that feels creepy in and of itself, it, even it, though I'm the teenager. I did, did, you know what else it made me think of is the movies back in the 80s. Yeah. You ever go back and watch Revenge of the Nerds and count how many felonies were committed in that movie? Oh, oh, well... Um, <laughs> and it was a movie at the end of the day where like, oh, this is just some college hijinks, just putting spy cams in a girl's sorority and uh, and uh, Lewis basically posing as uh, Betty Child's boyfriend and kind of quasi-date raping her right. and, like, in the moon bouncy thing. And- well, Molly Ringwald wrote a, a big piece and it was really interesting. And it's one of those things I think a lot of, a lot of people might have in the knee jerk like, oh, whatever, you're feeling... you're making too much of this you go back and you look at some of the scenes in like 16 candles some of those other coming of age movies yeah and there is like a kind of just a real loose attitude about like oh she was passed out and drugged up you know like and (laughs) and all this stuff that's like it's really shocking and not only did not only did that stuff happen but like they fell in love. Like, she right. fell in love with the geek who date-raped her in the back of the uh, Jake's Roll. That's Rolls it, but that's Royce. not ever, like, now, in that, in defense of that scene, if I'm remembering it right, so when uh, Anthony Michael Hall and, yeah. uh, and the hot teenage homecoming queen are in the back seat, neither one of them really remember anything. They were both right. in a, an extreme state. They I don't were. think, some people have pointed that as to, like, oh, he must have he must have taken advantage of her while she was passed out. They, like, I think there's a lot of haziness there. They, there. There was. You're right. Yeah. You're right about that. But there are other Doesn't scenes where right. they kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, football. Um, <laughs> perfect segue into football. Bunch of can we do a Can we do a podcast on Revenge of the Nerds someday? Can Revenge I, of the, oh can, yeah because Revenge of the Nerds that's that's what I'm saying if you count up the felonies in Revenge yeah. of the Nerds I'm gonna go watch Revenge of the Nerds and count up the felonies well the whole uh, you know and then the whole concept of like a panty raid which I think that had fallen by the wayside but what was yeah. that like back in the 50s 60s 70s where on, on college campuses yeah you'd go I feel in like and it's like, something my parents that's a about. that's a really creepy thing yeah <laughs> like, they I had one in Revenge of the Nerds they did a panty they raid. did a panty they raid. did a panty raid yeah they they panty raided the uh, the uh, the whatever the hot well, unlike, sorority was. Unlike Kill the Carrier, at least there's an objective in that. Game. There is, yeah. Whoever whoever scores the most panties. Um, your Football. college picks. Yeah. So let's I'm crushing see. Crushing it lately. You're, you're crushing it. What's your record now? Eight and two in my last ten against the spread in college. Now, do you keep track? Uh, do you keep track on the dollars and cents side? Like, cause you're if if you're like if you're actively gambling. Yeah. You're, there's some picks that you just simply feel stronger about. Well, these the, these are best bets, so I would bet what my normal max is on yeah. all of them. So people can do their own math. You don't you don't ever like increase your total because you feel really strongly about no, one I, for the most part. You no, I feel str- the the ones I give out on this podcast or give out on the Houston Press are the ones I feel best about. Yeah. They're not the only games that I bet. Yeah, there are other games I bet, but at a lower level. Than oh, that. okay. Yeah, so I these gotcha. yeah, so these are ones I'll bet. My like my big bets probably just to give people an idea. My big bets probably a hundred bucks on a game. Uh-huh. I'm not a thousand dollar a game guy or anything like that. A hundred bucks. And you're good enough at it that you're not like uh if you if you put a limit on how much you bet, you're not gonna get in, in a tremendous amount of trouble unless you start using emotion too much, right? And start like do, do a lot of people get in trouble where they like they go against their better instincts and like they'll go because they have a feeling about something and then they'll 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 just have a it's it's hard it's hard to lose extremely yeah. against the spread yeah. without being really boneheaded right yeah you know you know where people where and where in the past I've gotten into the weeds a little bit with with betting is when you're when you're watching games during the day 
and you overanalyze things and you hear some little bit of news about a game, you go, oh, I didn't bet anything on that game. That's yeah. a little bit of news I didn't know. Maybe I'll throw something down on this. Or, and this is why this is why the, the legalization of it in these states is going to be a big boon in a lot of these places, the live wagering. You know, you see something, you see a game that's at halftime and a team that's a big favorite is way down. So you feel like, well, they're going to come back in the second half. They're just a better team identifying things that you think are opportunities to bet in game or at halftime. That's where you, that's where you can start to kind of, it can start to spiral a little yeah. bit. You know, I used to, uh, when I used to do daily fantasy, because real quick and I, hold that thought, because real quick, what happens is that was money you weren't planning on losing going into the weekend of the beginning of the day. And the same mentality that gets you betting on those things are the same mentality that gets you chasing to try to make up for what you may have just right, lost. Right. Daily fantasy. Yeah. Forget my last thought. It was a dumb one. Um, <laughs> okay. Baylor, you're taking Baylor minus four and a half over Kansas State. I am. I am. I'm actually going to be at that game this weekend, and that is not why I'm betting on it. But uh, I think this Baylor team, they, they got they got beat up pretty good last week by Oklahoma, but Oklahoma will do that to teams that are just two levels lower than them. Um, I think this Baylor defense has vastly improved. This is mostly a bet against Kansas State as much as it is a bet on Baylor. It's a bet against Bill Snyder. Bold move. You hate Bill Snyder. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, Old honestly, people in general. Honestly, my uninformed take about this would be like, I, I saw way too many fawning pieces about Bill Snyder this week. I I almost feel like I almost feel like amongst the betting public, K-State's got a little bit more shine than they should because people love Bill Snyder. Yeah, so and they this is just – this is – K-State's been a team historically that's able to kind of rise up and win a few games here and there during the – you know, we, we know what they've been under Bill Snyder. This is a bad K-State. This is The problem with this K-State team is they can't score. Yeah. They're bad offensively. Baylor's a pretty good offensive team. They've got some weapons. The defense is a little bit improved this year. It's Actually, it's much improved this year over last year. Even though they gave up 66 to Oklahoma last week, Oklahoma's just really, really good. Kansas State's coming off uh, a kind of a tough nip-and-tuck loss against Texas, which I think is a game they get up for every year. So I just I don't think very highly of Kansas State. I think there's a little bit of a letdown for them traveling to Waco. So I think the I, I think Baylor I, – I, I think Baylor wins this game by at least a touchdown. And then you've got Vanderbilt plus 27 <laughs> over Georgia. Yeah. So I know people are probably like, you're betting on Vanderbilt. You're getting 27 points, 27 and a half. And if it's 27 and a half and you can buy it up to 28, then that's a football number. But whatever the case. I've used football number. I've learned that from you. I yeah. actually was talking to somebody today about a football number. Three, seven, ten. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, Vanderbilt is, I know that they're, you know, I know where they stack up in the SEC. I watched them play against Notre Dame earlier this year at Notre Dame. Their quarterback is uh, is Kyle Shermer, who I think is either the nephew or the son of Pat Shermer, the coach of the Giants. He's a pretty good quarterback. He can move the football a little bit. Georgia's really, really good, obviously, but they've got a stretch of schedule coming up where they play four ranked teams in the SEC the next four games. They play LSU next week in Baton Rouge. I just think – and then they follow that up. They've got Florida and Jacksonville for the, the cocktail party. And they've got Kentucky after that. And they've got one more ranked team after that, either Auburn or Alabama. Yeah. I think it's Auburn. They play Auburn after that. So those are four really good teams stacked up in a row. I think this is a big look-ahead spot for Georgia where they're not going to show a lot of stuff because of what they have coming up on the schedule. I think if Vanderbilt can get a couple touchdowns, they can hang within 27. And then I'll just read this off. Stanford minus five over Utah. And then anything quick on that? Uh, Stanford is coming off of two tough road trips, one to Oregon, one to Notre Dame. Um, I think being back at home is going to be kind of a boost to them, and I think Utah's not a very good offensive team. So I think Stanford is going to feel the relief of being 
of being back home. And losing to Notre Dame, that's our first loss of the year, but it's still out of conference, so they still got everything in front of them to play for in the Pac-12. Um, Ravens minus three over Browns. I'll be honest, I'm shocked by this spread. Um, I, For the life of me, I, I don't know what the Browns have done to deserve this kind of respect versus that Ravens defense, which <laughs> – Sean, do you realize they haven't allowed a touchdown in the second half yet? I think they're the best team in the AFC right they, now. They're giving up 2.2 points per second half. They're, they're the old Ravens defense, and they're getting there. And, Joe, I heard Boomer Esiason on a Sports Minute yesterday talk about how uh, some of the some of the games that you wouldn't shouldn't get all excited about uh, include the Ravens because Joe Flacco is Joe Flacco. Like no no no, not this Joe year Flacco is not Joe Flacco. He's been different. There's this is a much better offense. He's been good. They've been great in the red zone this year, yeah. <clears throat> and that's been a big thing for them. Um, yeah, he, there's a theory, Seth. There's a theory going on in Vegas right now. I listen to a couple of Vegas podcasts, and there's a theory going on in Vegas, and it's gone on for a while now. Even while the Browns were losing games last year. We remember till it got bad at the end of the year. They were losing a lot of close. They games. were close. They, they were in there. They were blowing leads in the fourth quarter. They, even they were they were finding ways to lose games. Yeah. So there's a theory, but they were still in a lot of those games not covering the spread. They were hanging in games, but they were still they still had a bad record against the spread last year. But the sharps in Vegas were betting like of all the teams that they were losing on last year, the sharps, they were losing a lot on the Browns because the sharps. We're betting on the Browns, you know, thinking they were getting value. And as a result, the Browns have become one of the more popular teams to bet on in Vegas with the Sharps. The theory in Vegas is that the Sharps are trying to look so smart by betting on the Browns. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that they're like, there's the, the, the Browns have such a bad reputation that the betting public doesn't actually know what they're watching. Yeah, and the, the Sharps are the ones who kind of know. Like, the, yeah. the Sharps are, it's almost like the people who are on Twitter who, when you try to make an observation about, like, the Astros, they think they're like, you're like, oh, you don't know. You don't know. You, you don't, don't know, know baseball, you right? Right. And Actually, no, the bullpen is just fine. And then after Luno makes a bunch of moves, like, well, Luno had to improve the bullpen. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the so the the sharps, the so the, the the sharps are are in. You know, the sharps have been betting heavily on the Browns. Well, the casinos adjust to that, and the result has been that the Browns at the end. You know, by the time. By the time game time rolls around, the Browns' spreads are, are even smaller than they should be. Right. Like the Sharps, there's probably a lot of Sharps on the Browns this week, so the sports books are setting it at three, when in actuality it probably should be closer to four or four and a half. I like I like this pick a lot because I like Baker Mayfield a lot, um, but I actually heard people I heard people saying, like, well, the Browns receivers just have to adjust to a different velocity on Baker Mayfield, and that's why they're dropping it. No! They're dropping the ball because they're not good receivers. Yeah. Like, they do some good things, but that's versus a Raiders defense that is not a good defense. And also, Joe Flacco versus that Browns defense, that Greg Williams defense, there are opportunities. Because Greg Williams does not have fundamentally sound defenses. He yeah. kind of brings people from all over the place, but they can be torched, and I think this is the Ravens team that can do it. John Harbaugh always has good special teams as well, and I think the other thing is Jimmy Smith is back. Jimmy Smith is done serving his four-game suspension. Jimmy Smith has a similar effect on the Ravens, like we've seen, Sean Lee's a good example in, in Dallas. Like yeah. when Sean Lee's on the field, the Cowboys are the equivalent of like a top six defense in terms of yards per play, which in the gambling world, that's the big stat is offensively and defensively is yards per play. With Sean Lee off of the field, they give up like six over six yards per play, which is one of the worst defenses in the league. I don't know the exact numbers for Jimmy Smith, but it's a similar effect, and he's back from his suspension. In terms of 
football numbers in the score. This is an interesting one to me now with the Browns because I didn't realize this, and it wasn't written about that I saw at least, but I was re-watching the game a little. I was actually watching the game. The, other. the Browns went for two, like, like four times in a row at least. Did they really? Yeah, I, and I didn't, I didn't see a whole lot of it written about that. But, like, from their first score, they started going for two all the time. Really? I'll go back and double-check that. Maybe I was on. Feels, maybe I was really drunk by the time I was watching that. It feels very Chip Kelly-like. Yeah. Chip Kelly does that. Yeah. They score first, and I think I'll go for two to make the score I, a little weird at the beginning of the game. I trust I trust Chip <laughs> Kelly if he has that strategy. <laughs> Hugh I'm not Jackson, so sure about Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackson, not so much. Seahawks plus 7.5 over the Rams. Yeah. I'm skeptical. But intrigued. This is in this is in Seattle, in and that Seattle. makes a difference. It's it's a it's a value play on Seattle as a home team, and I think a home team that's maybe a little underestimated because they started zero and two. They started zero and two. They lost in Denver week one. I think we've seen that Denver is not a is not a terrible team. They're a decent team, um, and they then they lost to the to the Bears in week two. It turns out the Bears are a pretty frisky team as well. Those are both losses on the road that they had to start the season. And in retrospect, at least in this little early segment of the season, they weren't bad losses. Um, Seahawks, uh, they they beat the Cowboys badly in week three. They kind of escaped from Arizona last week with a win. Um, so they're 2-2. Two and two. I don't think they're a bad 2-2. Two and two. Uh, Russell, Look, if you're going to back a home dog by more than a touchdown, I want to make sure their quarterback is one of the better quarterbacks in the league, which Russell Wilson is, even though that offensive line isn't very good. That's a scary matchup in this game. But this is a play, and that half a point is big. Again, back to the football yeah. number. The football number of seven. The difference between seven and seven and a half is absolutely gigantic. So I, it's purely a play, Seth, on the Seahawks being in a position where we we rarely see them as a home dog, let alone a home dog this big. The last time they were a home dog this big was the Beast Quake playoff game against New Orleans back in 2010. And I'm also interested in seeing over the course of the season how some of that Rams offense plays out with crowd noise. Um, and yeah. some of the cool backfield action stuff they do and with jet sweeps and whatnot, um, some of that requires really good timing. And when you lose the snap count, you lose some of that. And that Seahawks, that is a – that's an, an – I don't want to say intimidating. You never really get intimidated by the environment. But, like, as a player, that was by far one of the coolest places I ever played. Like, it feels like – I don't know what the decibel level is, but the way it affects you on the field is that it feels like there's a complete wall of noise enveloping Would you. Would you have loved to have played there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a great – that is a great crowd there. Yeah, they, this is, by the way, first trip even out of the state of California for the Rams this season. Oh, so wow. So not only to a, a rough – road environment. I feel and like it's a long trip. I think sometimes people yeah. think in their minds like, oh, West Coast is West Coast. Like, that's a haul. And, that's it does, a and you don't feel like you're on the West Coast when you're in Seattle yeah. either. You feel like you're, like this time of year, you feel like you're probably in, like in Omaha. You somewhere. feel like you're in some weird dystopian like post-nuclear <laughs> yes. war environment. Like the light is just kind of yeah. different. It's just, Everything's kind of eerie. Yep. The Falcons-Steelers, you're taking the over. I cannot fault you for that. Neither of these teams seem to care about defense anymore. It's been really sad to watch. It's one thing from the Falcons. Like, okay, the Falcons have never had a reputation as tough or no. brawlers or anything like that, even when they're good on defense. The Steelers in this just complete ineptitude. It is. And abdication of responsibility yeah. at times. It's freaking me out. As George Costanza t described his scalp one time, that is a place where a once great society of hair <laughs> once stood. That is, uh, that's the Steelers defense. This is where a once great society of defense once stood. The last three weeks for the Falcons, Seth, the final scores, 31-24, 43-37, and 37-36. Both these teams, I feel, should have better <laughs> pass rushes than they do. But I'm starting to wonder in today's NFL – 
I, I, I even wonder when the pass rush is good, how much it bails you out. Because you, you look at the, the Texans. The Falcons actually had a bunch of hits on Drew Brees or a bunch of pressure on Drew Brees um, a couple weeks ago, and it didn't matter. Yeah. Because you're right. Yeah, the Texans. The Texans last week. Clowney and J.J. Watt were playing out of their minds. It's just there's so many opportunities all over the field for good quarterbacks to do something. There are, and guys are getting teams are getting smarter about game planning against it too, with the way they get the ball out so fast. So yeah, it's these these two teams actually do have talented players in their front sevens. You know, the, the Falcons have, uh, you know, I, I can't remember if Beasley is injured or not, or if he's been playing. But Grady Jarrett and Vic Beasley and the Steelers have T.J. Watt and Bud Dupree and some good guys on that defensive line. It hasn't mattered. Hasn't mattered. All right, man. Good stuff. I got to go. I got to go dig up my old uh, high school calendars, get my alibis in. That in sounds mind. like a hell of yeah, an afternoon. That's what we're going to do. I'm going to Kavanaugh it up. So, <laughs> all right, buddy. Take it easy. Appreciate it. Enjoy so. the baseball games. Thank you. You too. All right. Now, up next, we've got Michael Lombardi. He joins us every week on Mad Radio on Thursday mornings at 9.20 a.m. Uh, and he always brings it. But the two voices, for those of you that aren't here in Houston that you hear on there, are my co-host, Mike Meltzer. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Meltzer, Meltzer with an S, and uh, at Gallant says, G-A-L-L-A-N-T. S-A-Y-S. Uh, they are both awesome professionals, and they do a great job with me. So here's Michael Lombardi. And joining us now is Michael Lombardi, author of Gridiron Genius, a master's class in winning championships and building dynasties in the NFL. He writes for The Ringer and The Athletic as well, longtime NFL personnel man. Michael, uh, good morning, and I'm guessing that given the current state of the Houston Texans, we might be the only people this week that ask you about the emergence of Kiki QT, who breaks a record for number of catches in an NFL debut, and yet I don't I don't know if I've seen his name once anywhere in a in a national publication. Can I am I allowed to get excited about Kiki QT? I don't see why not. I mean the kid played really well last week. I mean it took Bruce Ellington's injury for him to get on the field and he responded and so Look, I think he's done well. I think the key for the Texans' offense, and for him specifically, is is Will Fuller. I mean, he's Will, when Will Fuller's on the field, the Texans are a different team. You know, it helps Hopkins. It, it takes a lot of the pressure off him, and it takes it off a of Cote. So I, I think you should be as excited about him as, any, as everyone. Of course, naturally, the national narrative won't ever get to it. They're too busy talking about the Philly special. Yes. <laughs> Mike, it, it seems to my eye like O'Brien did clearly change the offense on Sunday, and it seemed like QT was kind of the, the focal point before the snap. Why is he claiming like he didn't change the offense? Well, I mean, look, it's game plan specific is what Bill does. And so he's playing against a team like the Indianapolis Colts. It's a lot of zone. They needed an inside slot receiver. And especially with Watson's movement in the pocket, which creates alleys, it's always hard for the Tampa T2 scheme the Monty Kiffin schemes to handle quarterbacks with movement because they're a zone team and everything's in space. And what do they teach you in basketball about space? Pass the ball quickly from one side to the other, and you create open shots. It's the same thing in football. You need spacing inside, and that's why Cote was so effective. The Texans are going up against and running back in Ezekiel Elliott, who can do a lot of different things to them, whether it's running the football or catching the football out of the backfield, as he showed against the Detroit Lions last week. What's it going to take? For the Texans to stop him, obviously they've got Jadevian Clowney and J.J. Watt in the front seven, but just a couple of weeks ago, Saquon Barkley really carved him up. 
Yeah, I, I think it's the key game for for the Texans. I mean, they've got to win first down. They've got to be able to get where they can put the pressure on the Cowboys passing game to be a little more diversified off of uh, not being in second and short, third and short, stuff like that. Elliott really hasn't been a factor in the passing game. I mean, I thought it was coaching malpractice up until last week until they finally used him. They actually called a screen last week, and they actually got him out in space and threw a route into him. I mean, he was averaging under four yards a catch going into the going into the Lions game, and he emerged. I mean, he's the weapon of their team, and to me, it's the Romeo Cornell. You're going into the game plan saying, look, we got to stop Elliott. No matter where he is on the field, we got to stop him. When he extends out, here's what they do with him, and then go from there and build the game plan that way. But I think if you're a Texan fan, you got to be encouraged by the way Clowney played last week. He actually looked like the Clowney that I remember, and I thought that was good. I think they've got to rotate J.J. Watt more. I mean, J.J. Watt was absolutely dynamic in the first half, but he wore down in the second half. Too many reps. I think less of J.J. means more of J.J. That's a, uh, I brought up that point earlier in the week, and how do you do that with a guy like J.J. who wants to be out there every snap? And, look, he's going to do what you tell him to do. As a coach, you have to figure out, all right, we've got to balance this and have this fourth-quarter mentality. Is it is it a matter of having that Belichick mentality of, look, the first three games are all just a prelude to the real game, which is the fourth quarter, so you're going to be a little bit weaker on defense at times in the first three quarters, but those just don't matter. We need J.J. in that fourth quarter. Yeah, I would take, I would show, I would put in his locker when he's not there pictures of Michael Jordan sitting on the bench during yeah. a game and just let him know that, look, even great players need a rest. You know, and, and look, we need you out there, but Michael Jordan didn't play 48 minutes every night. You know, Michael Jordan needed to be fresh for the fourth quarter. We need you for the fourth quarter because we're going to be in these close games and we got to get you to create the plays in the fourth quarter. And when he sees it visually like that, it becomes a little – it's easier to talk to him about it. When you're taking him off the field during the game without a conversation, he's like, man, I'm fresh, I feel good. Well, no, we're saving you. And I think you got to have a talk about it. Mike, I know it's four days later. Did you like or dislike Frank Reich on the fourth and four going for it? I didn't like it at all because, look, I get the understanding you don't, nobody plays for a tie, but you don't know what's going to happen if you get the ball back. I mean, we've seen the Texans shoot themselves in the foot too many times this year to think that they've got this thing nailed down, right? So it could be a blocked punt. I mean, anything. I mean, I think a job of a head coach is to make sure you put your team in the best position to win. Now, if he converts on fourth down, look, he's got the number one third down passing game in, in football, Frank Wright. So I understand why he did it because they've been very effective on third down but I didn't like it because I think it comes down to one play and I hate throwing hitches just like I hate throwing fades in the end zone I think it's lazy coaching I think it just to me it's not really designing a best way to get the play if he would have probably run something else maybe I would have liked it more but to me to run a hitch you know and to do it that way I wasn't excited about it plus I think it doesn't give your team a chance to win Mike, you've called Jason Garrett the clapper, and this name doesn't quite roll off the tongue as well, but after watching him on the all-or-nothing last season with the Dallas Cowboys, I feel like he's the unnecessary swearer. He swears a lot for no reason, and it's weird because he's so understated with his actual motivational speeches that he gives. We've been playing audio of that all day, but him as a head coach, what's his biggest issue, and honestly, how has he kept his job so long? Well, I think he fits Jerry Jones's profile, what he wants for a head coach. I mean, Jerry wants somebody who's going to do it. I think that's the answer to it. I call him the clapper because all I have watched him do is clap. He's got this reputation for being an offensive guru, but I haven't seen much of the rue in the guru. You know, and so now the play calling's in Scott Lenahan's hands. 
you know, Rod Marinelli a, a, runs the defense, and you know, what are the what? So what actually happens? I mean, what's going on? I mean, I I just don't know, and that's what to me, if you're going to stand on the sideline, you got to be involved in the game completely. And if your if your reputation is that of an offensive guru, and the offense looks as stagnant at times as the Cowboys does, you got to question it. Speaking with Michael Lombardi, author of Gridiron Genius, Michael, one of the most fascinating parts of your book to me is where you break down what makes a good head coach or or at least what does the head coach need and and to you it boils mostly down to leadership and you can do it in different ways you could be like Marv Levy you could like be like Bill Belichick that's the thing about Bill O'Brien that I I actually think he very much has in his favor I feel like he's a natural leader of football players what what's been holding him back from maybe being better than he has been these last four years I, I think really he's – I don't think he's gotten the staff, and I think where Bill misses, I think it's about training the staff. I think Bill's got all the things he needs. I think maybe now with Brian Gain, he's got somebody he trusts in the front office, and that certainly could help him. But I think it's all part of the staff. You know, he's got Romeo there, and he's got to develop young staff members, I think, that fit into the philosophy. That was the hard thing in Cleveland when we first started out, you know, was to develop those young coaches. Eventually we did, and if you watch the Cleveland 95 documentary, there was a lot of good coaches that – started Cleveland. I think that's the challenge. And then the details. I mean, look, the longer you're a head coach, the details become more obvious to you. And I think that's what Bill's got to keep working at. Look, I admire him. He benched Davenport last night. I mean, I saw, at some point I was going to ask the question, how many more false starts before a guy gets benched? Yeah. <laughs> and when you do that, you send a message to your team saying, look, I don't tolerate it. Remember this about coaching. You're uh, I think our line to, maybe a, did we drop him completely, or is uh, might have to reestablish with him? In and out, in and out. Um, the one thing too, I I, I'm very excited. I'm like, I'm like listening basically closely to what he was about to say about Davenport. <laughs> well, one of the points he makes in his book is, and this is where I'll give credit to both Rick Smith and Bill O'Brien, um, was a coach's willingness to bench a high-priced free agent or a high draft pick goes yes. a long way in the locker room. It goes a long, long way in the locker room. Um, do we have him back up, Jonesy? No, Not yet. No. He's reconnecting. So, and, and O'Brien's showing through the years that he's willing to do that. And it is. There's there's something there. Like, when you look at, when you look at Jason Garrett versus Bill O'Brien, you can just tell. You can feel it. Like, you don't know how to define it, but O'Brien has a certain leadership ability that I think some other coaches don't do. I agree. And it's a matter of filling in everything around him. One of the points that Lombardi makes in his book about when he was first working with Bill Belichick in Cleveland was how important Belichick treats special teams. And that they always felt that if you take a good special teams player, you can teach them over the course of a few years how to be a good football player. And that's where you can get really good value in the draft. One of the most encouraging things about the Texans so far this year for their long run yes. is the fact that they're third in DVOA in special teams. Yes. After having been at the bottom of the barrel for years and years and years, um, they're one of the best teams in the league this year in special teams because I think partly because that one fake punt doesn't count against their special team stats but i that's a good sign for brian Gain for me they've actually addressed these concerns and that some of these good special teams players should develop into good bargains as nfl players well that's why there are some weird things going on with the texans where vegas thinks highly of them the advanced stats think highly of them you know special teams have gotten way better the rookie class has been very good especially a rookie class without a first or second round pick so you have all these different things going on that should be good, and yet you feel kind of like, all right, can I really buy into this team at one and three, given how bad the start was? So it's a it's a bunch of weird things going on. But Seth is one hundred percent right. The special teams has been way better, and I looked it up last night. 
that the best part of their special team so far has actually been the punting. So the decision to go with Daniel over Leckler has worked out. I think we have reconnected with uh, Michael Lombardi. And, Michael, we had a shaky connection, but you were just talking about uh, Bill O'Brien and the decision to bench Julian Davenport before you cut out. And I think we we tried. it's like that's I'm right. cursed. We the line ten, is we cursed. Good, we had a good ten minutes with him. We had a good ten minutes. That, that's true. I thought the thing I wrote down that was probably the most interesting thing as it relates to this game and then moving forward is they got to rotate Watt more. And I know as Seth, you mentioned the follow up question that it's tough to do because he's not going to necessarily want to do that. But you do have some options there. Yeah. You have merciless. You've got edge of four. They're obviously not as good, but that's something you can do. And, and, and I think they need to do. Because it's like J.J. Watt's reps and Jadeveon Clowney's reps aren't normal reps either because they're getting double teamed so much that it just you have to grind out that much more and use that much more juice to, to get it done. So I, I, think, I think you'll see that. And that Belichick philosophy, and I can't even remember how the fractions work out, basically he treats the first three quarters like the first. They're only worth... 50%. I don't know. Um, it's all about setting up for the fourth quarter. Okay. That, that, and if you look at the Super Bowl, it's kind of that way. That By the time you get to the fourth quarter, okay, you figured out exactly what you need to do, and you're in, good, and you're in shape enough and you're fresh enough to do it. The other thing I wanted to ask him was um, I, just, I need to see a downside of Pat Mahomes. I, I need somebody to tell me where Pat Mahomes might not make it as, like, a really good quarterback. And I guess the only thing would be is – Right now, you're seeing him surrounded by a bunch of awesome talent and incredible speed on the field. Like, I guess he hasn't really had to, you know, if Josh Rosen were in the same situation and he were in his second year, would Josh Rosen look anything like this? And I, it's hard because he makes he makes incredible throws. I guess It's not like he's just a, a product of the system. I guess if you're an opposing defensive coordinator, I'm looking at Kansas City, and I feel like, all right, if I can just shut down the run and not allow deep passes to Tyreek Hill, then maybe I have a fighting chance. That's how I'm looking at it. Yeah, and, and I mean, even then, I, I, I just don't know that you can take away. Like, they need an injury or something like that. I feel that we'll get them off track for a little bit, and then you'll have to see Patrick Mahomes struggle. But, I mean, you've got a guy for every single level of the field. you got Travis Kelsey over the middle. You have Tyreek Hill downfield. You have Sammy Watkins 10 yards down the field. Out of the backfield, you've got Kareem Hunt. I mean, he has too many weapons to fail, I think. Yeah. At this point, he might. Pat Mahomes, by the way, the AFC Offensive Player of the Month. J.J. Watt was the AFC Defensive Player of the Month. Khalil Mack was the NFC Defensive Player of the Month. So those are your awards. I, I really love the latter. So who, was, awesome. who, was the, who was the NFC Offensive Player of the Month? Who, I don't care. I'm going to guess Jared Goff. I think that's probably a good guess. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.